a couple weeks ago, um, Clint graciously um, invited our family to go with him to Bath Ironworks and to take a tour of their open house and to see some of the, the, the work that he's done on the, the destroyer that he's helping to wire and uh, um, see, the, see, the, see the whole factory and the whole site there, the assembly lines that are going on. So we had a beautiful day. It was a, it was a um, spectacular uh, day of weather. But it was interesting to be able to um, tour the, the uh, uh, destroyer that he's working on, one of the newer ones. looks kind of like the stealth bomber, but in the water. It's specially designed not really to do a whole lot on the deck, but to do more in the inside of that ship. And uh, we were able to take a tour on that destroyer. And after we took the tour, we ate lunch, and then we took a walk through the uh, through the assembly line and some of the places where they where they put together different parts of the boat. And one particular section, they had a video taken from the deck of an aircraft carrier of a destroyer that was accompanying the the um, the aircraft carrier. And it was a really stormy day. And that destroyer was going up and down, up and down, bobbing as it forged ahead in the seas and wherever it was, maybe the Atlantic Ocean or another ocean there. And as I watched that video, I noticed that, that uh, there were waves that were so big that the destroyer would go and you wouldn't see the, the hull of that ship. And then it would surface again and the waves would splash up. And, then, and, and, and it would reappear every time. And sometimes when you looked at that destroyer, all you could see would be the, the bridge of that particular ship. But every time it would reappear as it forged ahead and plowed ahead forward. And I thought, what a, what a good illustration sometimes of what marriages are. The storms of life are beating, uh, and, and, and it seems like that, that ship goes under, and then by God's grace, it plows ahead, it leans upon His promises, it forges ahead, it reappears every time by God's power and God's grace. And, I, and we've begun this series here with a bunch of E's, marriage and E. And last time we looked at marriage and engaging with the idea from the Song of Solomon chapter 8 that happy marriages are not accidents, but they in, have, a, have an intentional and Engagement, intentional process, intentional investments in the God's design by surrender to His will and sacrifice and pursuit. And this morning I want to look at the topic of marriage and exactness. And by that I mean precision from Matthew chapter 19 verses 3 through 12. That God designed, He created, He oversees marriage and He is present in it. He is present in it. As we work through this text, we'll look at um, several T's here. First of all, and we look in verse 3, we're going to see a test. A test. Verse 3 says, The Pharisees also came unto him, tempting him, and saying unto him, Is it lawful, is it according to the law, for a man to put away his wife, to divorce his wife for every cause? There's a test here. These Pharisees are coming to Jesus, and it says in verse 3, they are tempting Him, which tells us, Matthew tells us their motives in presenting this question to Jesus. They were interested only in defending themselves and what they believed, and they saw this as an opportunity to question Jesus on the Jewish law of divorce that was recorded in Deuteronomy 24, verses 1 through 4. Because there were two schools of thought within the Pharisees. There is a thought um, under the school of Rabbi Hillel. And Rabbi Hillel had a different train of thought about this passage and interpretation than Rabbi Shammai. And they were first century Jewish scholars who every Pharisee and anyone who knew anything about the Jewish law would have known. 
Hillel took a very lax view about marriage and said on the basis of Deuteronomy 24, 1-4, which we'll look at in a minute here, that um, uh, a husband could divorce his wife for almost any reason. Because in Deuteronomy 24, uh, it says that a, a, uh, he can, if he finds some indecency in her, he can put her away, he can write a bill of divorcement. Rabbi Shammai was a little bit more conservative, uh, and he took the stricter view and said that Moses was specifically speaking, when he talks about indecency, about sexual sin. And so they thought no matter what side Jesus took, he's going to make somebody mad and get, get more people on our side against Jesus. Now, on Hillel's school, which takes a more lax and liberal view that a husband could divorce his wife for almost any reason, it um, would include just being upset with your wife. Or one rabbi later on takes that and says, uh, if she makes you a bad meal, you can divorce her. So they had really pushed the limits here of the text here in Deuteronomy 24. But I'd like you to turn to Deuteronomy 24, verses 1 through 4. Um, to see what the text they are pressing on Jesus is so that we better understand the passage. Deuteronomy 24, verses 1 through 4. Moses' law here given to the Israelites. Deuteronomy is a restatement of the law that had been given in Leviticus and Exodus. And Deuteronomy 24, verse 1 says, When a man hath taken a wife and married her, and it come to pass that she find no favor in his eyes, because he hath found some uncleanness in her. Remember that that was, that was the issue that the two schools of thought debated over. One said, uncleanness, that could be anything. So anything is liable for divorce. The other said, no, just, just um, sexual uncleanness. Then let him write her a bill of divorcement and give it in her hand and send her out of his house. And when she is departed out of his house, she may go and be another man's wife. And if the latter husband hate her, and write her a bill of divorcement, and giveth it in her hand, and sendeth her out of his house, or if the latter husband die, which took her to be his wife, her former husband, which sent her away, so if she gets, this happens again in her second marriage, may not take her again to be his wife after that she is defiled, for that is abomination before the Lord, and thou shalt not cause the land to sin which the Lord thy God giveth thee for an inheritance. I'm wondering what, what he's saying here, and, and uh, as I was uh, doing research on this, and, um, uh, Warren Wearsby points out that a, a more literal translation of the, of the Scripture um, helps us see the tenses of the verb. So let me just read it in, a, in another, another sense here. What he's saying is this. When a man takes a wife and marries her, and it happens that she finds no favor in his eyes because he's found some indecency in her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out from his house, and she leaves his house and goes and becomes another man's wife, and if the latter husband turns against her and writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house, or if the latter husband dies, who took her to be his wife, then her former husband who sent her away is not allowed to take her again to be his wife since she has been defiled, for that is an abomination before the Lord, and you shall not bring sin on the land which the Lord your God gives you as an inheritance. There you kind of hear the, 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 the tenses of the, of the verbs a little more clearly. And translation makes it clear that Moses gave one commandment here. One commandment. The wife who had received the certificate of divorce could not return to her first husband if she was put away by a second husband for the same uh, same deal. 
Moses here does not command divorce, but he permitted it. He allows it. He commands that the husband give his, give his ex-wife a legal bill of divorcement. But the wife could not return to her first husband after being remarried and divorced. And, and you might wonder, well, why does he make her write this out? Well, begin with, that would make your husband think twice before hastily, in a fit of rage, divorcing his wife since he could not get her back again. It was final. But it also would have taken time to find a scribe in Israel because not everybody could find a legal, someone who could write legal documents. And During that time, perhaps there was a time for the two to be reconciled before that bill of divorcement is, is, is uh, written. But the Pharisees, the problem was, the Pharisees in Matthew 19 were interpreting Moses' law as though it were a commandment. This is something you have to do if you're you find something out about your wife or if you're in Rabbi Hillel's school of thought and you don't like something about her. And uh, the, the, but Jesus makes it clear that Moses was giving an allowance for divorce, but the question comes up, well, what does Moses mean by this uncleanness, this um, uh, indecency that might be found in her that would give uh, a, a status to divorce her? And the Hebrew means some matter of nakedness, literally. That's what it means. And it's the idea of some shameful thing. And it was that interpretation of that phrase that put the school, two schools of thought that they think that Jesus is going to divide the, the, uh, the Pharisees down by and have people turn against him. Now, how does Jesus respond to this? Well, secondly, I'd like you to notice the text. Matthew chapter 19 and verse 4 and 5. Here's how Jesus responds. And he answered and said unto them, Have ye not read that he which made them at the beginning made them male and female? And said, For this cause shall a man leave father and mother and shall cleave to his wife, and they twain shall be one flesh. Wherefore they are no more twain but one flesh. What therefore God hath joined together, let no man put asunder. In other words, Jesus says, wrong question. That's the wrong question. What does the scripture say? And instead of going back to Deuteronomy, where they have used that to launch their, their test to Jesus, Jesus goes back to Genesis. Because what God did when he established the first marriage teaches us positively what he had in mind for a man and woman. Because if we build a marriage after God's ideal pattern, we will not have to worry about these other things. And um, also uh, reminds us that in our very first message, we looked at marriage in Eden. And then after that, marriage in exile, when man falls into sin. But marriage in Eden, God's ideal for marriage. Now, there are three times that the New Testament quotes Genesis chapter 2, verse 24, which is quoted here, as the unchanging and glorious meaning of marriage today, even in a broken, fallen world, and until the end of time. And it's obvious that Jesus is defining marriage in a way not just limited to a time of paradise and perfection in the garden, but meant for our broken world today because he is answering a question about brokenness in our world, divorce. And his teaching so clearly recovers and so, so strongly constructs before them the original glorious vision of marriage in Genesis that in verse 10, his disciples are astonished. They say, well, if this is true, then who can, who can handle this? In other words, Jesus doesn't lower the standard. He doesn't lower the standard. 
And so when asked about this question of divorce, Jesus goes to Genesis 1 and 2 for his, for his wisdom, as if that's the most natural and obvious place to go. That's where it all began. And in verse 4, he appeals to Genesis 1.27, where Moses, Moses wrote the book of Genesis, says that God made man in his image, and he says, in the image of God made he them male and female. He made them. Male and female. Okay? And then in verse 5, of uh, Matthew 19, he appeals to Genesis chapter 2.24, two, where we have the picture of Adam uh, and uh, needing a helpmeet, and God taking the rib out of Adam and forming his helpmeet Eve, and God bringing them together. Now, <clears throat> this obviously shows us, a side note here, that God t- Jesus took the Genesis account there as authoritative, as God's word, as authoritative. He does not say about Genesis 2.24, says, Sure, we all know that old verse in Genesis chapter 2. There, but that doesn't apply anymore. We moved on. But Jesus treats Genesis 2.24 as filled with exactly the insight into marriage that we need today as we think through our marriage problems. The idea, the point, the purpose. So he not only believes Genesis 2.24 to be valid and relevant, but he publicly teaches it to be so. And Matthew records this for the church for all time. Not because he was a man of his times. Simply just because he's echoing what everyone believed back then. Because what gets Jesus into trouble is that he is not a man of his own times. He thought for himself because he was God. He spoke boldly out of his sincere convictions because he was rooted in the Word of God. Because the Word of God is the will of God. And Jesus is God, so the Word of God is Jesus' will too. And he never minded disagreeing with anyone when it was God's word. He speaks boldly. Yes, he allows himself to be spoken to as rabbi, which is the honor given to a teacher, teacher. But he did not teach as one more voice in this, but as the one who, because of the word of God, and because he was God, had the authority, he spoke as the son of the Father. Now that's important because without getting involved in the controversy that they were trying to distract him into, the Hillel Shammai controversy, Jesus reminded the religious leaders of God's original purpose in establishing the marriage bond. That first of all, God made people male and female. Male and female. I mean, it is binary. There, is, there, is, there, there are no other choices. They're male or female. In marriage, he joins them together in an inseparable bond. And that bond is a higher calling, he says in this scripture, as he quotes from Genesis, than the parent-child relationship. For a man is to leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife in a one-flesh relationship. So therefore, he says, Jesus, Jesus adds to this, he says, therefore what God has joined together, men ought not to separate. Verse 4 and 5, again. Haven't you read that you made them at the beginning and made them male and female? And he who made them at the beginning, male and female, said this about it when he brought them together in Genesis 2.24. For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother, be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh, so that they are no longer two, but one flesh. And Jesus, on the basis of that, gives this summary statement Therefore, what God has joined together, let not man separate. Well, what's their response? And that's the third thing, the trap. And verse 7, they say, ah, okay, 
Well, remember, Moses in Deuteronomy 24 uh, says this about an exception. And so verse 7, they say to him, Why did Moses then commanding of a writing of divorcement put her away? Remember, they're thinking, still thinking Deuteronomy 24. And so the Pharisees, realizing that Jesus says something about the permanence of the marriage relationship, ask why then, aha, we got him now, why did Jesus make a provision a divorce for people in his time? In verse 7. And Jesus' answer, the terms are in verses 8 through 9. Here's his response. He said unto them, and this is important, the pronouns here, them, you, Moses, because of the hardness of your hearts, suffered or allowed you to put away your wives, but from the beginning it was not so. And I say unto you, Whosoever shall put away his wife, except to be for fornication, and shall marry another, committeth adultery. And whoso marrieth her which is put away, doth commit adultery. He lays out the terms of what that meant. The Lord's answer is that Moses had granted this permission because the people's hearts were hard. Deuteronomy 24, 1-4. Because your hearts were hard is literally toward the hardness of your heart. That word is uh, where we get the word um, sclerosis um, uh, that the the original uses. And and, and the point is that was not God's intention for marriage. It was not in line. It was bent out of line. God intended, Deuteronomy 2.24, husbands and wives to live together permanently. And divorce was wrong, except, Jesus says, except for marital unfaithfulness. And he says more about this in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5.32. Now, what's their take on this? Well, the disciples are the unseen uh, third group of people in this. Pharisees, Jesus, and his own followers here. And they hear Jesus teaching... And they are they they take him seriously, don't they? They don't just say, "Oh, that's nice, Jesus, you believe that." No, they see him as an authoritative teacher. And in verse ten, they say, "If such is the case of man with his wife, then it's better not to marry at all." I mean, why start something like this? So they hear his words and they understand him in this way. And they reason, if there were no grounds for divorce, except for the clause of 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 of. of uh, um, uh, sexual unfaithfulness, then one would be better off not to marry. And Jesus gives the truth here, and in, in the sixth point here, in verses 11 through 12, his response is this. But he said unto them, so when it says, but he said, it's in contrast to what they're saying, alright? So he's not in agreement with them, he's clarifying. He said unto them, all men cannot receive this saying, save they to whom it is given. Now, what is he saying? Well, it's okay for people just to, you know, take divorce loosely and just kind of do whatever they want because not everybody can handle this. That's not what he's saying here. What he is saying is there's either marriage or there's not marriage. In verse 12, he says, as an example, for there are some eunuchs, those who will never marry, which are so born from their mother's womb, perhaps they have a birth defect that prohibits them from the sexual union of marriage. And so they, just, they, they, they decide never to marry. And there are some eunuchs which are made eunuchs of men. This would happen in their times um, where, where people would have um, surgeries, for lack of a better word, that would limit them in this. Because they were servants, perhaps serving in a royal court, 
Um, and they didn't want them to have that temptation. Of course, that doesn't take care of temptation, right? And then there are some that have made themselves eunuchs for the kingdom of heaven's sake. People who said, I am going to pursue singleness so that I can focus on God's work. All right? Paul talks about this in 1 Corinthians 7. And in our very first message, singleness and the glory of God, we looked into that. Harnessing your singleness for God's glory. He says this, He that is able to receive it, let him receive it. And there, right after, verses 13 through 15, he takes some of the products of marriage, little children, and he talks about the kingdom of God. So here's the truth that Jesus is saying. What the disciples said, if such is the case of the man with his wife is better not to marry, that is not what Jesus intended. For God had given marriage to people for the betterment of society, flourishing of society in Genesis 2.18. Be fruitful, multiply, replenish the earth, to, 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 to populate the earth with image bearers of God. And Paul says in 1 Corinthians 7.2 that marriage can be a deterrent to lustful sin and to unfaithfulness. But Jesus is saying there are a few who do not have normal sexual desires. They were born eunuchs or became that way later. In other words, they're well, organs were not what they could be or should be or taken away. Who are able to control those desires or, or others who are able to control those desires for the furtherance of God's program on earth. But not all are able to accept the single role, is what Jesus says here. And many marry and they carry out God's purposes extending His work in the world. And that's what He's saying here. That though, in other words, those who are married need to take this. Other, obviously, they're not the ones who are in the other category here of those who who will be permanently single. All right, and they need to take God's truth here seriously. So Jesus is the Creator, He is the Teacher, He is the Redeemer, and He is the Lord. What is He telling us about marriage in Matthew chapter nineteen? Well, what he is saying is this. The followers of these two wrong schools of thought about divorce, Hillel and Shammai, um, and the other disputers here, they're all losing sight of what was central, what the point was. That marriage is not to be understood as a casual union subject to the whims and desires of, uh, of, the, of, of the man. That it is a close and abiding, a binding union. It is the closest of all unions that are on this earth. Even closer than parent and child. And therefore, it must accordingly be treated with respect and reverence. Because what Jesus is saying is this. Underneath this is this. Because marriage is what it is, because God has created the union, let man not pull apart those whom God has joined together. So Jesus here is stepping back and not siding with either of the, of the, 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 the two schools of thought here that they wanted him to do. Rather, he is saying it's a whole other thing altogether. He is directing their eyes not on what is allowable for divorce here, but on the point and purpose of marriage. He is calling on His hearers to take seriously the design from the beginning that they profess to respect in Scripture. 
And if they did this, they would realize that marriage was a much more binding relationship than they were making it. So he takes them straight back to the maker's instructions at Genesis 1.27, 2.24, and he makes six points about marriage here. Six points. Don't worry, these won't be long. Okay, Six quick points here. First of all, it is designed by God. Designed. The Creator said, <clears throat> in verse 4, the Creator said, that quotation from Genesis 2.24, is Moses doesn't say, God said this. Moses just writes those comments. But Jesus says, God said this. The Creator said this. What God said meant that marriage is no social construct. It's not just a social contract. It is a God-given ordinance. And the tiny creature and the tiny creation has no right to say to the infinitely wise, all-knowing, all-powerful, eternal maker that he messed up and we know better. In other words, the clay does not say to the potter who best knows how to use that clay and fashion it that he has a better idea. And to do so is brimming with arrogance and rebellion. God designed it, he made it, and he oversees it. The second thing this, this text tells us is that marriage was designed to be complementary. Complementary. And what that means is, in verse 4, when it says that God made them male and female, that God did not create a unisex world. There is a God-ordained difference in complementary... Com, com, let me say that quickly. Complementarity between the genders. This is so obvious that unfortunately it needs to be stated today. Because we, like the fairy tale, are like the emperor of no clothes who don't know we're not wearing clothes anymore. If you follow the, 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 uh, the, the allegory there. Um, uh, because other relationships have been imposed on God's design to be seen as equally valid alternatives to marriage. And the trouble about this is that it takes away the whole point of what God said. Male and female come together and two become one flesh in marriage. You may hear people who try to defend their distortions of marriage and gender from the Bible, even, even professing uh, believers today, by saying that, well, Jesus says nothing about um, homosexual marriage. Right? And by that, they're implying that, okay, well, that means he's okay with it because he's silent about it. But when Jesus says that male, man is male and female, humanity is male and female, when he says that marriage is made up of a male and female, he has defined it as such and in agreement with all of Scripture. If, in other words, if I say a triangle has three sides to it, but I never say anything about a square, it doesn't mean that a square is also a triangle because they don't mention the square. The triangle is defined as having three sides, and therefore whatever does not have three sides is not a triangle. And so it is with marriage. It is one man and one woman coming together in a union till death parts. <clears throat> but thirdly, this passage teaches us that marriage was designed to be permanent. The two will become one flesh. The bonding here is to give a permanent relationship that will not be broken by anything indecent. And here again, in an age of... Um, uh, marriage breakdowns here 
uh, it does not change the fact that God has designed marriage to be permanent. It is His purpose. In fact, the very words that are used to describe the union, one flesh and united, it literally means glued together, like you would glue together two boards, those who work with wood, and if you try to take those boards, pry them apart together, there's going to be little chunks of each board um, uh, on those two boards when you pry them apart here. They're designed to be together. Um, it affirms the goodness of God. God's gracious gifts to His people and sexuality between man and woman who are in covenant marriage and not something that Christians should try to disparage. You know, there's no prenups. Adam and Eve didn't sign a prenup in God's design. Marriage is a covenant of vows before God. And that is why we say, till death do us part cannot be taken as I hope so's. Or, a throwaway mentality of things. Um, someone can tell my, my, my dear grandmother that she doesn't have to wash bread bags uh, and hang them on her and hang them on her um, uh, her drying rack in her kitchen because those are okay to throw away. She grew up in the Great Depression and so she still washes her bread bags and, and their sandwich bags and she's very frugal here. Um, uh, and, and, and But there are some things that can be thrown away and there's some things that the Bible says we don't throw away and marriage is one of those. Fourthly, marriage is exclusive. It's exclusive. The man is united to his wife. Verse 5. He becomes one flesh with her. He's not allowed to have a little flutter and a little flirting with his secretary or co-worker or other person on the side and neither is she either is pledged to find their joy and service to one another. And so, to display on earth a model, though it certainly is limited and inadequate, a model of the permanent relationship between God and the believer, Jesus Christ and the believer, which nothing can break. Fifthly, marriage is nuclear, which you might think, oh yeah, a nuclear explosion. That's not what I mean. Because we're told to leave and cleave and create something new. There's a transfer of allegiance, right? When you're children, you're supposed to be under your parents' authority. Uh, you're supposed to be uh, respectful and honoring and obeying them uh, there. But there is a transfer of allegiance from parents to spouse. There is a substantial measure of distancing from your parents, the older generation, to create the new, a new family. A fresh family unit is in the making. Now, of course, the new couple is going to many instances. You draw on the wisdom and support from your parents, but the fact remains, they are a new unit and need to freely behave like that. Sixthly, marriage is before and through the face of God. It is before and through the presence of God. Jesus' insight is deeper than what might be obvious here when he, when he reflects and interprets for us Genesis 2.24. It's amazing. Jesus sees that word become, become one flesh. They shall become one flesh. And he recognizes, as the creator, the one who designed marriage, that there is something that we might have never thought of Behind that word become, Jesus sees a personal power at work. 
And the one who is behind that personal power is no one less than God Himself. What God has joined together, Jesus' words about this text. So a husband and wife, when they marry, do not become flesh because, oh, I like you. Or because they have some sort of feelings or attachment. Or even by the pastor's pronouncement or some mysterious process. The overriding point of this is that God joins them together. Which is what the marriage ceremony you know, um, is, is to display. I heard uh, one pastor, Ray Ortland, tells those he's counseling uh, before marriage, premarital counseling, he says, this is why, as a pastor, when I provide premarital counseling for an engaged couple, I always try to tell them something like this. On your wedding day, you will not be there to entertain an audience. You can ignore the crazy hoopla of the typical American wedding today. I hope you will relax and enjoy this wonderful moment because there will be only three important people there at your wedding ceremony. The bride, the groom, and God. The rest of us will be, properly speaking, mere witnesses to what God will be accomplishing between the two of you. He will be present, joining you together, soldering you together, uniting you together as one flesh for the rest of your earthly days. And seven, marriage is obviously not for everyone. That's the plain meaning of verses 10 through 12 there. Disciples were took seriously what Jesus' words were. Um, and they, to them it seemed, well, there's no way out then of a disastrous union, so it's better not to marry. But Jesus is not ultimately making that point. He's setting forth God's purpose in marriage. He's going behind the ease of divorce that they were wrapped up in, and He is telling them what God wants in marriage and what, how it lines up with His kingdom. And if that seems tough, it is because marriage, just like singleness, is a gift. It is a gift. It is something by which God joins a man and a woman together. And no, it's not His gift to every, everyone. In fact, it's a different gift for those who are able to be single their, their lives. It's a gift. They're not rights. And so, Jesus is, is saying that um, <clears throat> uh, there is such a thing as a call to marriage and there's such a thing as a call to celibacy, to not being married. And it is a beautiful thing, Jesus is saying here, when it's embraced and gladly followed through. So instead of um, Jesus saying this is a demanding thing to which um, uh, not everyone is called, he's saying this: it is a responsibility not to be evade, not to be uh, turned away from by those who Jesus does call to it. So when it comes down to it. Here's the two things we need to take away from this passage for us. Two applications. First of all, number one, precisely because God wants all marriages to be permanent, we dare not do anything to jeopardize them. That is within our control. Um, You see warnings on your gasoline containers or on flammable substances not to store them in your house. And so you don't do what I do and put your lawnmower gasoline in your basement. It's a bad idea, right? Because, because you, you, you value, you treasure your home. You don't want it to go up in flames. All right? So you, you know, put it outside, away from the house, or store it in a, a dry area, away from the house, etc. Here, Why do you do that, though? 
because you understand that there are possibilities that could make your home go up in flames. The gentleman who does our, um, who services our fire extinguishers here several years ago, ironically, had a fire that burned his house down um, because there were some um, paint cans or chemicals that were in his house that somehow got on fire because of a faulty phone charger and it burned his house down. Everyone was safe, but it was a debilitating thing for, their, for them financially um, there. And so he's giving all kinds of warnings. Here's what you don't do. Make sure this is... And I was talking to him. Why? Because he had seen what will happen and he see the wreckage and carnage from not guarding what he treasured. And so, because God wants and desires marriages to be permanent, we dare not do anything to jeopardize them. So there are things then that we put off. Men and women, we guard what we are looking at with our eyes. We guard what we are pondering on and thinking about with our minds. There are situations with the opposite gender that we do not put ourselves in. There is entertainment that cheapens or reduces God's design for marriage and or mocks it in our shows, our movies, our songs that we will not participate in. There is anger and bitterness in our marriages that we do not let go long before we ask for forgiveness and repent. There are little tiny people that God gives us in our marriage that we do not exalt over our, over our spouse. By the way, the best thing you can do for your kids is to love their mothers before them. Fathers, mothers, love your husbands over your kids. The kids will look back on that and thank you for that later, I believe. But on the opposite side, secondly, on the positive side, Precisely because God wants all marriages to be permanent, we then make every effort to preserve and honor them. There are things that we put off. So we celebrate what we are protecting. That means that we put on humility in asking sincerely, how can I best serve you? Husband, wife. What three things do you see that I need to work on? Maybe more than three. And we make time for dates and getting away with our spouse, away from other people. That we grow in learning how they are designed to receive love and try to package it that way in the way they best receive. Now, some of you maybe heard of the five love languages here. And the five love languages are bad and they are good. They are bad in the sense that you are looking for people to... to um, uh, to only uh, treat and respond to you in the way that you respond. They are good for understanding other people and how to selflessly serve them in the way that they understand. Words of affirmation, some people respond better to. Quality time. Receiving gifts, acts of service, physical touch. So that's just a, a man-made explanation for some of the ways that we receive and we uh, uh, communicate in our language of love. There's a test online you can take, just a practical thing that, that you can have your spouse take so that you know how to best serve them. In other words... Believing that your marriage is a gift and that you, by God's grace, are going to invest in it is what this is all about. Folks, your kids will leave one day. Hopefully, right? 
Your vehicles and that prized car was going to rust out pretty quick in Maine, right? Houses will go. Even your friends may move on. But your spouse is yours and you are there till death. So you better take care of that. You better make that a priority. So what are you doing about it? In closing, I want to say this. What Jesus says, and I realize this raises up all kinds of questions about divorce, which is a whole other topic here. What Jesus says here is so striking and so sacred that it deserves to become a conviction that we revere and that we remain loyal to. There are many, many decades of marriage represented in this room. None of them are perfect marriages. And not all the years have been good. But there are many people who could tell you in their roles and in their wisdom how God has enabled them in their marriage. Seek them out. You find somebody who's been married 20, 30, 40, 50. We have people married for 62 years and more, I believe, even here. Ask them, how does God help you do this? Because this definition of marriage has been distorted and expanded and blurred into just another social arrangement of, oh yeah, let's make this commitment to each other because we have these feelings toward one another and they miss the big picture that the Lord Jesus is imparting to us. It is true that not only was God present when He joined Adam and Eve together as one flesh, it is true that not only is God president present in the institution of marriage in general, but He is present in every lawful marriage in particular. And friends, Jesus shows up in the brokenness of His law-keeping Jewish society, and He is talking about marriages that fail, marriages that end up in divorce, and He is pushing back against the cheapening of marriage by showing us how grand God's design of marriage really is. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. And if you are married, you have things in your marriage that disappoint you. I guarantee it. Still, God is the one who joins you two together. And your imperfect marriage in the world of today is as sacred in the sight of God as was the perfect marriage of Adam and Eve in the garden. Your marriage is a gift of God's grace from above, whether you realize it or not, or whether your circumstances are influencing you that way to think that way. In other words, your marriage is a miracle in a broken world. And your marriage came to you with the touch of God upon it, and it is dear to Him. And your marriage, by God's grace, has the potential to give life into the broken world we all live in now. Your imperfect marriage is worth celebrating. And Jesus thought so too.